Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, episode 36. And uh, I don't know about you, Catherine Whitaker, but I am buzzing as a British person who has just seen Great Britain come back from two love down in the Davis Cup for the first time in 83 years to win a tie. How cool is that? Yes, it's pretty cool, isn't it? Pretty, um, all the more cool for being so very unexpected, I would say. Um, yeah. I think if you said you were after being too loved down, you you thought we had a strong chance of coming back. I think you'd be lying. I know. So, I, mean, <clears throat> I mean, to be to be quite honest with you, I, I watched a, a lot of it on the uh, on the LTA website because they had a live stream on there, and I was sort of um, I, I'd only been back from Miami for a couple of days, so I, I didn't actually go to the tie. But I was um, I was doing all my sort of uh, household chores and watching this um, watching this this match sort of evolve and I think what really struck me is how well they played on on the Friday both Dan Evans and James Ward and came out with nothing and I think that at that point it just felt like another glorious defeat really you know of the type that Britain generally not not even just recently but generally has been Mm. known for didn't it Mm. I mean you know if you think of all the years when remember when Britain were in the in the world group with Greg Rosetsky and Tim Hemman and they had that classic against the United States and five setters against Jim Courier and all that kind of thing and they ended up losing and it just felt like it was going Mm. to be another one of those and and you can almost feel the the burden of that history on on the young guys who you know you can't blame them for feeling the pressure you know five all in the fifth set or whatever and but you can almost feel the the burden of those gutsy losses you know um on these these young players who haven't got a proven track record and uh you almost think it's going to be easier for them to come out and and blast these guys away in in three sets rather than getting into a <clears throat> a uh a gritty position where they're potentially um, going to have to hold their nerve to some to to some extreme extent. But you know, ignore me because they did. Well, it. which is in a way, it's, I mean, that's what you just described is what Dan Evans did in that final rubber. I mean, he came out onto the court smiling, and and I think he's the, the type of character who isn't conventional. I mean, that much we do know. He he just doesn't react the same way as most players do. I mean, I don't think he... I mean, he admitted himself after the first rubber, he doesn't put in necessarily enough effort off the court. He doesn't find the grind of the tour enjoyable and easy necessarily. But whereas the ones that do might slightly find it a nerve-wracking experience in front of a massive crowd with everything to play for and everything on the line, he came he came alive. He certainly did. Um, he, he was he was sensational. You can't argue. But I mean, he came out and he won in three straight sets. Which I mean, you can't take anything away from that performance. It was sensational. But I can't help but feel that you know, had it got to the sort of situation that James Ward was in, being two sets to one down, you know, having to really gut something out, he might not have been able to come through there. Did you see the point that I'm making? Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, I suppose we'll never know because, I mean, I think he's had one when he didn't. Remember when he was under John Lloyd and he he didn't quite come through. But then he had one when he did last year 
in that uh, in that tie they played when they played against Martin Kleizan and Lukas Lachko. I think that's Slovakia, wasn't it? Which was a great performance. I mean, you know, we're not going to know um, uh, is the truth of it. But I think what what you have said there, which for me is the best performance and the biggest performance of of the weekend, was James Ward back from two two sets to one down to beat Dmitry Tursunov. I just I mean, as well as he was playing, and he did play well in the first set and a half of that match, when he went down that position, having lost in five sets two days before, I really had no expectation whatsoever of him coming back. I really no, me didn't. Neither. And, and that's, that's a huge credit Expectations were low, that, that's fair to say. And uh, he totally surprised me and, and everyone by the sounds of it um, and uh, he, he's got every I mean he looked chuffed didn't he he's got every every right to yeah. to bask in the glory of that for for some time to come I think makes for an interesting um, world group playoff now doesn't it because uh, that will be drawn on Wednesday we're recording this the day <laughs> after the tie on Monday and um I mean, Andy Murray has already said he's going to play. He 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 said a while back, you know, if uh, I'd be happy to play in, in in the autumn if if it comes up. And uh, and now, I mean, credit to Leon Smith, crikey! I mean, I, I actually covered for Five Live the um, the the match they played in his first tie in 2010 against Turkey, and uh, if we lost that, we would have gone down for the first time in history into Group Three. Euro African Zone Three with Andorra. That truly, is the wilderness, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and here we are, three years later, with Leon Smith's leading a team that hasn't always had Andy Murray. He's had him a couple of times, but he hasn't always had Andy Murray in the team. And now they've got themselves into a World Group playoff. I mean, it's, but I think it's quite I think it's really. I think it's right that they haven't always had Andy Murray. I know Andy Murray has made the decisions based on personal reasons, but I don't think it's right that uh, you know the Davis Cup shouldn't be about one standalone player being able to you know put a plaster on a gaping wound <clears throat> as it were no. and um, it's so also I, the I think it's right that you know these guys as a team have got us into the position where we can now show show our hand show everything that we've got which obviously is Andy Murray and and, and give ourselves the best shot of getting in into the world group but I, I think it's happened the right way you know I don't think there'd be nearly the same sense of satisfaction or level of Deserving had Andy Murray, you know, come through and and won, 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 played in that last tie, won his two singles matches, you know, played in the doubles and and basically dragged everybody else through with him. Um, it's a bit like it's a bit like when, as you're a kid, you get your dad to do your homework for you, and you come out with a great mark and a great gold star, and yet uh, and yet you haven't really done it. Um, Absolutely. You know, th- th- this is this is them going alone, doing it themselves. And now they can invite their best player back into the fold to take on, you know, one of the best teams in the world, probably, or certainly one of the one of the better teams. And and I do think it has much more meaning, much more resonance. And um, absolutely, it it does a disservice to the Davis Cup if if a team is able to win essentially with just one one player doing the legwork, which I've referenced a few times on the tennis podcast. But that GB tie against Thailand, which which Tim Henman won absolutely single handedly. Hold um, on, Miles McLaggen will disagree with you there just a little bit. <laughs> okay, with with a mention to Miles McLaggen, uh, come on, Tim Hemmen. Tim Hemmen dragged everybody else behind him, didn't he? In that he did, time. but Miles was, Miles was a willing accomplice. But no, listen, I take your point completely. Uh, but I think the the bigger point is that I don't think one man, may, maybe Ivan Lubacic could disagree with this because he almost, he pretty much won the Davis Cup single-handedly for Croatia, but you can't really do it with one man. I mean, and t- you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to do it with one man, more to well, the I point. Well, I, I, I think if you can, you do, personally. But I don't think, even, even Roger Federer isn't great enough to win it on his own. He needs somebody else. And I mean, I think it showed with Tim and Greg, Tim Hemmen and Greg Rosetsky, at the peak of their powers, Britain never got beyond the World Group first round. And it's and although they were a good doubles partnership, how on earth? And I was talking to Ross Hutchins today uh, about this. I mean, Ross actually helped prepare the the team, doing some analysis in the in the lead up and some strategy. And and he's uh, I think he's now seven treatments into his twelve uh, sessions of chemotherapy. He's coming along well. Uh, there's just a little update on Ross, but I mean, he he was making the point that you know how could James Ward possibly have come out after that? 
five set match where he was sobbing into his towel at the end of it in, in, in sadness at not winning how could he have come out and played the doubles the next day and, and, and really been able to give his best on the final day so that's what we were expecting Tim Hemman and Greg Rosetsky to do time after time now they've got a proper doubles partnership so you know the, the, there's definitely chances to get into the world group and maybe go further yes and that does seem to be very much the trend with Davis Cup at the moment doesn't it that that captains are picking, are using two of their selections to pick double specialists, which is absolutely how it should be. It's a singles and doubles competition, I think. And, uh, you know, USA always pick the Bryans. You've got um, Spain tend to pick um, Granollas and Lopez, don't they? And, um, you know, obviously we've got, I, I guess it would be Hutchins and Fleming, but, you know, Johnny Murray's a Wimbledon champion. That's that's not a bad fallback, is it? I think... I think that's great for the tournament that that, that trend seems to be um, peaking at the moment to, to pick specialist doubles yeah. players for the Davis Cup because it is a singles and doubles competition. And also, I mean, you know, Colin Fleming is a very likeable bloke, as is Johnny Marion. And also, I, I just love watching Johnny Marion play the game of tennis. I mean, he's a throwback. He, he glides to the net. He punches volleys away. It's, it's, it's very enjoyable to watch. Yes, a throw, absolutely a throwback, isn't he? It's like it's if if you if you put a black and white effect on the telly, it would be believable, wouldn't it? You could be watching Wimbledon yeah. from the fifties. Oh, well, you see, in his early days, you see, I remember when he played Queen singles and he had peroxide blonde hair and he almost beat Leighton Hewitt, and it's a great memory of mine. Um, probably about twelve years ago. Gosh, now. yeah, I God remember dear. that one. Listen to me, show We've my managed age. to get about ten minutes into the podcast without you mentioning that Dan Evans is from Solihull. Oh, yes, absolutely. Solihull's own Dan Evans. That's right. Uh, You know, Dan Evans, uh, I was trying to work out today. How do you transfer Dan Evans, Davis Cup player, into Dan Evans, the singles player, week to week? And, I mean, it's, you know, I was was actually quite, quite reassured and impressed the fact that he was so open and honest in his press conference after the first match. And he just said, you know, I, I haven't worked hard enough and I've got to do more. And all this kind of thing, and I and I was thinking, you know, how do you get him to 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 where we where Britain would want him to be, and he would want to be, because he seems to find the I suppose the loneliness of the circuit and the and the the treadmill and of, of it all just mundane. I don't think he's the type of character that you can apply the same rules to everybody else. Everybody else. For I don't know whether you can create different rules or whatever. Here's a theory, Catherine. I've got a theory. What about if he just got wild cards into half a dozen massive events with big crowds and big points and fast-tracked his way into the top 100? How about that? Okay, a few questions. Who's going to give him those wild cards is number one. (laughs) Uh, I'd say that's a risky strategy. I remember towards the end of Greg Rosetsky's career when he had had all those injuries and... And he was coming back from various things. He said, he said, and I remember reading an interview. He said, "I'm just going to focus on the slams. The slam. I'm going to peek at the slams." Well, I'm afraid, as as wonderful an idea as that is, and there are plenty of players out there who respond to the crowds and the big stage. And it would be a dream if if that's all that tennis was about. But it's just not physically possible. The the structure of the game is is such that you you have to have the consistency. You have to do the grind and. I have every sympathy with Dan Evans that, that that lifestyle doesn't suit him. You know, why should it be suited to everybody? I can see the monotony of it and I can see how, you know, for certain personalities it would be unchallenging in some ways or, or boring, unstimulating, whatever it may be. But maybe the fact is there's just no way around that. You know, that is that that is one of the challenges of being a professional tennis player. And if you're not up to that challenge, then it doesn't matter how good you are on the court. Yes, very true. Hey, Catherine, I, I, th- I think we are in danger of just uh, slightly alienating every single person outside of the United Kingdom with our chat at the moment. So I think we need to, to, to try and broaden things out just a little bit to talk about the other Davis Cup ties of other countries. And also, uh, I can't believe it, I've actually forgotten to mention our star guest for uh, episode 36, which is uh, Bethany Matic uh, Sands. And uh, and I interviewed her uh, a few days ago, and uh, and she was fascinating, and we'll, we'll play you that 
and we'll we'll be talking tennis clothes after that uh, because I've been asking you for your opinions on Twitter. Uh, but uh, I've got my excitement over about the the Great British uh, doubles team, uh, Davis Cup team rather, and. Um, uh, and I know we try to be obviously impartial, and particularly when I'm on the BBC. But you know, we can we can forgive ourselves just a little bit of uh, of indulgence about a, a great win for the British team. Uh, now, Serbia against the United States, Catherine. That was a, a bit of a turn up. I watched some of that over the weekend as well. Loads of tor- talking points came from that, and, and most particularly the, the performance of uh, what's his name. Is it Ilya Bozilyac, I think it was, from Serbia, mm-hmm. who played in the doubles, who I'd only ever seen once before at Wimbledon, playing sp- some spectacular tennis against Roger Federer to win a set at Wimbledon. Um, and he, I suppose he's Serbia's Dan Evans, because I'd never heard of him again for the next three years. And then suddenly he comes out and he plays doubles against the United States, against the Bryan brothers, arguably the greatest doubles pair in history. And look what happens. I mean, they've beaten them deep into a fifth set quite remarkable and I think that tie was all about the doubles wasn't it because obviously you're backing Djokovic to win both his uh, both his singles you're probably backing John Isner to beat uh, Query and, and Isner both to beat Victor Troitschke although you know not a foregone conclusion but probably on the form books that's where that's the way those singles matches would have gone um, and then uh, you've got and then and then it's coming down to the doubles isn't it and um, well, would you ever bet against the Bryans? Um, I, I wouldn't have done before the match. So to win fifteen thirteen in the fifth against uh, the experienced pair of the Bryans—I mean, that that was the tie right there, wasn't yeah. it? That was. And, and then the, the and, but I mean, e- even that wasn't the drama over with because Djokovic then turned an ankle right at the start of his match with uh, Sam Querrey in the fourth rubber when they're two two rubbers to one up. I mean, you know, he had to have that heavily strapped. We don't know the severity of the injury at the moment, but, I mean, he seemed really in discomfort. I mean, it sounded as though he was effectively playing through quite a serious injury, uh, or potentially one, Um, you know, and he managed to do so. I mean, great credit to him for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and we we will wait and see the, the extent of the injury going forward, I suppose. Yeah, I tell you what, it's been quite. I I know he wouldn't want it this way, but quite a quite a weekend for Andy Murray. If uh, if Britain wins without him, gets him into a World Group playoff, and his his closest contender for World Number One gets crocked in the process. Oh, David, you cynic, you cynic. That's not what Andy Murray's thinking. <laughs> it's a bit mean, Come isn't on. it? He doesn't want to get no, to number what one David by Law's default. Thinking. This is true. This is true. But uh, I, I can allow myself just a little bit of fantasy about the, the prospect of, uh, of number one changing hands. But you know what? I don't want it to happen like that either. And we wish Novak Djokovic all the very best and, uh, and the speediest recovery possible, of course. A couple of other notable results in the Davis Cup. Uh, the Czech Republic victorious and a name we haven't heard too much about in recent uh, months, not since that famous day on the centre court at Wimbledon, Mr. Lucas Russell, winning the fifth and deciding rubber. Actually, it was the fourth rubber, wasn't it? Because they went up 3-1 to, to beat Kazakhstan. And Joe Wilfred Songer going all the way to Argentina to win both singles rubbers and still end up losing in five. Yeah, brutal, that one, brutal. Going all the way to Buenos Aires and... And doing every, everything you possibly can, and still, still not being enough for your country—that's that can't be a very nice feeling. But um, Mr. No. Lucas Russell, um, maybe he's a sort of once a year wonder. Maybe he will have just he's one back. stunning moment or one stunning event or match per year. And then we have to wait yeah. at least 12 months for the next one, or I suppose nine months. Well, I, I saw him play against uh, Djokovic in Miami a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, he started off the first game. I don't think Djokovic touched the ball because it, it was being hit so hard by Russell for, for winners and aces. And then he didn't win another game or match because he just couldn't find the court. And Djokovic was way too consistent. But great stuff. And it does make for some fascinating semi-finals. We haven't even mentioned Canada yet. Milos Raonic, for the first time in Canada's history, are into the semi-finals of the Davis Cup. And Milos Raonic is the man who put them there with victory over Italy's Andrea Seppi. And they will take on Serbia in the semi-finals. When you saw those two lineups, Canada against Italy and the United States against Serbia, I did not expect Serbia against Canada to be the semi. Well, no, no, nor nor Italy. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have placed Italy there either. Italy, uh, Italy defending um, 
Fed Cup champions, or was that from the previous year? Am I? Yeah, I can't exactly remember, but I know what you mean. I mean, so that mm-hmm. you know, that's quite for them to be having such success in the men's and women's. That that seems to be quite rare at the moment. For I mean, m- countries are weighted either towards towards the men or towards towards the women. Um, so that's quite something for Italy to be having such success on both sides. Um, and obviously, obviously, yeah, Canada's a surprise, but then, you know, they've got Raonic and they've got um, Daniel Nestor, haven't they? So so why not, you know? Yeah, well, it's a great story. I mean, Dan- Daniel Nestor, somebody was saying recently, I-, I heard that Daniel Nestor is surely one of the most underrated players in the world of all time. I mean, if you consider his achievements, you know, he's been world number one, he's won goodness knows how many grand slam doubles titles you know he's a he he's a a really great player in doubles and here he is still going now and who maybe he'll add a, a davis cup crown to to his uh, list of of uh, accolades you know it's certainly certainly impressive well that's the davis cup which we've just had and we uh, also have had a victory over the last uh, few days catherine for serena williams yet again defeating uh, yelena yankovic in the final on clay in charleston and i heard there was a little bit of aggro in the final as well uh, apparently uh, there were a few words and uh, and yelena yankovic actually s- said to to serena when she was about to serve um how, how long how long are you going to take and um and serena just said until i'm ready Ooh. God, and then that's a bold move yeah. from yankovic and then apparently Yanko- yankovic didn't win another game after that yeah <laughs> that was a risky strategy that absolutely did not pay off for yelena yankovic yeah yeah, I suppose I, it's one of those things you try. It's one of those things you try once, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it try once, sort of in your dreams. Yeah, and then realise it's a terrible idea and and discount the idea for real life. But no, well, I yeah. mean, she's she's got some guts, but probably won't be doing that again. I would imagine. No, no, I wouldn't uh, suggest it. Uh, they, they also, I <laughs> noticed it in that in that tournament. They rather than sort of player chairs, they had a player sofa. Uh, that they could just sort of lounge around in between uh, points. And I noticed that Yankovic was sort of sliding down into this comfy-looking sofa when she'd lost a set and looked as if she might never get up again. Um, So that's uh, Serena Williams winning Charleston. Now, let's talk to our big interviewee uh, on the Tennis Podcast here in episode 36. It is Bethany Mattox-Sands. She has been as high as 30 in the world. But as you will hear, she's known for rather more what she wears than uh, than how she plays at least that's how she sprung to the imagination of many people and uh, and as i told her when i first clapped eyes on what she was wearing i was i was not too sure that she and i would get on here here's our interview uh, uh, with uh, bethany matic sense here on the tennis podcast well, it's a pleasure to be uh, joined by somebody I've shared a commentary box with once or twice in Bethany Matic Sands. Bethany, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. I have to be honest. I'm going to be right up front with you right now. I didn't know whether I would get on with you when I first met you. <laughs> Years ago. I, I, I remember watching you on the TV and I thought... Here I am, pasty-faced British guy. I'm not convinced that we'll see eye to eye when they told me we, we were going to share a commentary box to you with with each other, and and I did. And uh, and it's terrible, isn't it, to make such first impressions? <laughs> have you have you had that before? I've definitely come across that before. I mean, the the first impression, I you know, I have blue hair right now. I've, I have tattoos. I dress a little different. Um, but there's a I'm like I'm like an onion. There's a lot of layers to me. <laughs> <laughs> When did you when did you first start to have you always had that sort of style all the way through your your upbringing and so forth or was there a point that you thought I'm going to wear this today <laughs> Um, I know when I was younger, my aunt actually made a lot of my tennis clothes. So I always had uh, original tennis stuff to wear. But I would say, you know, when I was about 16, 17, I was really shy. And that was kind of when I started coming out of my shell a little bit and um, got a little more involved in fashion. But before that, I was pretty much jeans, flannel shirt and hiking boots. So I've changed a lot. But, um, you know, I think I've I've seen the world, you know, I've, I've, I've been able to, to, I've been lucky enough to travel a lot and see a lot of things and it's kind of broadened my horizons. When you, when you sort of come to a tournament and you think, right, this, I could wear this or I, what, what is the process? How do you arrive at what you end up wearing on court? 
Um, well, at least for right now, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm into a lot of color. I'm very colorful. Um, so that's probably priority number one is I got to like the colors. Um, but two, it's, I mean, it's important that you got to move in it, sweat in it. I mean, obviously as much fun as it is to wear funky things on the court, you know, I'm still there to play and win tennis matches. So I don't want anything, you know, getting in the way or falling off or, or what have you. So that's, that's probably (laughs) a good priority to have too. But, you know, for me, it's, it's based on the mood too. Like I have a lot of choices to kind of pick from and you know depending on night matches you know I might wear more all black obviously during the day if it's really hot you want to stick to whites so I don't know there's you know there's it's kind of a there's a method to my madness but not really (laughs) more than that most of the most of the matches I've seen you play have tended to be from the commentary box or on the tv I've never been really up close to the court when you've walked out in a big match is there ever a sort of murmur that goes around if you walk out wearing a particular outfit for the first time have you ever noticed a sort of wow was she, was she wearing there? Have you ever noticed anything like that? Uh, definitely. Um, you know, I think at Wimbledon it was actually one of the big ones when I wore the tennis ball jacket. That one definitely got a lot of attention when I first walked out. But Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. It's funny. I think I was walking in Indian Wells last year, and I just was walking through a crowd of of fans, and I overheard someone say, "Is that the crazy one?" And I was like, "Yes, it is." <laughs> but you know, it's you know, it's just my personality. It's how I am off the court, um, too. If you get to know me off the court, that that's kind of how I am. I like to have a lot of fun and and be creative and and be different. So that's that's me on the court too. You drive a heck of a vehicle as well. I've seen that. On, I've seen a video on your website. My goodness! If you haven't seen it, go. And have a look there's this absolutely massive black truck that you drive around is are you still driving that around uh we actually well we actually got a different one so now it's kind of like a maroon color but it's still pretty much just as big we have a big dog that's probably in the truck bed uh in the picture too but um yeah i mean it's kind of go big or go home (laughs) (laughs) yeah but the, the the thing is as well i mean you are quite a tennis analyst that is what i've gathered from commentating alongside you you think quite deeply about the sport don't you i know and does it surprise you <laughs> in all honesty i didn't know what to expect to be quite honest when we started commentating and i and i i'm quite ashamed of, of the fact that i had these preconceptions but here here we are you know you, you're sitting there and you, do you watch matches when you're not playing are you, are you somebody who who follows it closely in that regard I do, and I think even in the most recent years, I've really watched a lot of video and kind of broke down my opponents a lot more, broke down myself on what I need to improve on, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've been able to do so well. But, you know, it's it's interesting when you do get into it, you your eye becomes a little bit different, and you have a tendency to, you know, see weaknesses, see strengths, and then once you are playing in the matches, you're recognizing those quicker. So I, I do tend to watch uh, a lot of tennis. You've been as high as 30 in the world, and you've had a pretty rough time, haven't you, with injuries over the last few years just I mean give us a little idea into what it is like trying to deal with that when you get an injury and 
you know, you're making some progress and then suddenly, bam. Yeah, I think that's the toughest part about it is I would get some good results or I'd have a great tournament and then all of a sudden I would get hurt and I wouldn't feel as good. And, you know, I just had a tough time with that over the last couple of years. And like you said, I did get managed to get up to, to 10 in, or sorry, uh, 30 in, in singles and 11 in doubles. But, you know, I just couldn't quite sustain it. However, this year, exactly, we were just talking about it. I started in Australia. I went nine weeks in a row. I think it was the first time ever in my career I've made it that long. Um, So I'm I'm finally feeling good. I think at 28 is – 28 is the new 18 for me. (laughs) So that's that's what I'm going to go with. But – you know, you, the the thing that comes in my head is um, it's a quote actually um, from John Wooden. I don't know; it's his basketball coach, and he said, um, "Don't think about what you can't do. Think, don't let what you can do." <laughs> okay, let me start that over. <laughs> don't let what you can't do get in the way of what you can. And to me, that's it's true, you know, because there was a lot of things like watching video that I could do even when I was hurt. So, you know, my goal was to always try and be improving, you know, no matter what my situation, if I was able to play tennis or if I was hurt or if I, I was in the middle of a match. I just wanted to keep improving and give myself the best chance to do well. So here at the age of 28, what do you still want to achieve in the sport? What do you really think you can achieve in the sport? Well, I'd, I want to get back to where I was. I want to go back to 30 in the world. You know, I want to get that seed at a, at a slam. You know, I had that actually at Wimbledon was the, that was the first one I got it at. And, you know, I want to be back there. But, uh, you know, other than that, it, it's hard to really place goals like that. I mean, real, realistically, what I do is I work on myself. I work, you know, what, what do I need to improve on after each match, whether I win or lose. I, I find things I need to learn, find things I need to work on, and then I go do it again. And, and that's how I'm going to get back there. So I think it's it's more focusing on what you can control versus the outcome of things. And in the meantime, you've had a heck of a doubles career. You, you referenced it there. I mean, you, you've won a, a mixed doubles Grand Slam. How, just just tell us what that was like to, to, to be there, you know, at the tail end of a slam, winning a big one. It's awesome. Well, it's funny because actually for us the player there's nobody in the locker rooms like you're there by yourself and mixed doubles I think we were like the last ones there I mean I was like the only person left in the women's locker room so you know it's it's awesome I mean the stadium there is awesome I think Australia has some of the best fans in tennis um you know me and my part it was Horia's first one as well and you know after match point I th- I just stood there my mom called me and she's like you just stood there jumping up and down like a little girl <laughs> I was like, that's pretty much how I felt. You know, it was, it was a little surreal, but it was, um, you know, wow, what a moment. I mean, it's it's definitely an achievement for me. And you played a lot with Sanya Murdso as well, haven't you? I, yeah, me and Sanya, she's she's pretty one of my best friends on tour, best friends period. You know, we know each other for a long time now, and you know, we have a lot of fun. And I think one of the good things about us is, you know, through the ups and downs, you know, we're, we've always been great friends. And I think that that's what gets you through tough matches is that, you know, people talk about communication and doubles and, and me and Sonia have that, and I think that's one of the reasons we've been able to do so well this year. You reference you, you watch a lot of videos and you break down opponents and, and that kind of thing. Who is, in your mind, the currently the toughest opponent for you personally out there? Man, me personally, I, I don't know. It's a tough one because there's a, there's actually a few girls on tour that I've never beaten. So I would have to say, you know, people like you know Sharapova or Serena or Venus, the the people that I've I've never beaten. I gotta say are my toughest opponents. Um, but I think everyone kind of has their strength. I mean, you know, for example, when you think of Maria Sharapova, I mean, she's probably one of the most mentally tough, consistent players out there. And no matter no matter what, she's going to come at you every single point with the same mentality, and, and that's tough to go up against, and that's why she's she's a great champion. But, you know, all the top players have their strengths, and it's just a matter of – you know, getting my strengths up to that point, then I'll, that I can beat them. You mentioned Sharapova. We were talking about misconceptions earlier. I sometimes think people have them of her, in as much as they see this person who's very famous for for being glamorous and so forth. But she is a rottweiler of a competitor, isn't she? Oh, she's one of the biggest competitors. I mean, she she is. I, I would say she's probably one of the top t- toughest ones. Obviously, I mean, she's her record shows it. So, I mean, I think her three set record shows it. She's she's super competitive, and you know, but you can't. I, I think everyone kind of portrays it a little differently. I mean, because there's girls out there that look like they're not trying when you play them and they really are that's just kind of their personality and that's their game style and you you almost sometimes get swayed by some of those people that might maybe walk a little slower or maybe look like they're a little distracted but I think if you really interviewed any 
player on tour, they're all pretty competitive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you wouldn't be out there otherwise, would you? So once you've got back to where you were, top 30, and, and fulfilled your goals in tennis, what next? Once you finally hang up that racket, what, what, is, what is life going to be like? What do you want to do? I, that's a good question. I mean, I think since my husband is here with me in the room, one of the things we've talked about is starting a family. You know, obviously that's that's something that, you know, is tough to do when, when you're playing tennis. And there's a couple girls that have kids that are on the road. But, I mean, it's I give them the biggest respect because that's got to be one of the toughest jobs, playing professional tennis and being a mom and staying up all hours of the nights with your baby. I mean, that's, that's impressive. So um, I'm not sure I'll be able to do it, so that's why I'm playing now. <laughs> and professionally, are the, the, the things, I mean, because of your, your interest in fashion and that kind of thing, is, is that something you'd like to pursue further? Definitely. I, you know, I've been loving fashion for, I don't know how many years now, and I definitely love to kind of continue in that, in that way. You know, it's just, I'm kind of an opportunist, I think is how I describe myself is really kind of seeing what tennis, what opportunities my tennis career will bring me afterwards. Um, You know, I've done a little commentating too. I really enjoy that. You know, I know a lot of the players and, you know, it's easy for me because, you know, I've played them before. I actually know how they are on the court and I know how they are off the court because, you know, a a bunch of them are completely different. So, you know, I think it brings a different perspective when when I commentate some of the matches. But, you know, there, I mean, there's a definitely a few things. I'm not, I'm not sure how involved I want to stay in tennis after my career I think you know most players kind of take a couple years just to kind of you know we've been doing this since we've pretty much been five you know so it's it's something I think for a couple years I might want to try something completely new but I don't know it's that's something I'm I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens well been a pleasure to have you with us here on the tennis podcast. I'm glad that uh, that I was sensible enough to, to actually <laughs> look beyond my ridiculous preconceptions. Uh, it's been great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, there's Bethany Matic Sands talking to me uh, a few days ago, and as as you'll hear from that, she's uh, she's a lot of fun, and um, and and I certainly had a bit of a surprise when she first entered the commentary box uh, alongside me, Catherine, at the BBC. I mean, I mean what I say when I saw her on the TV. I thought, no way is she and I going to get on. No way, because uh, because I'm a rather conservatively dressed English bloke, and she's a rather uh, creatively and and uh, and um, loud dressing American lady. And I thought she's not going to appreciate me at all. But we got another like a house on fire. Hmm. I mean, you also had that. I had an early experience in my career of Bethany Matic Sands, which I, I I give her the benefit of the doubt on. I, I was a reporter at Davis, uh, a Fed Cup event, and uh, I had pretty much the worst interview I've ever done was with her. And, and she, it seemed to be her mission to make my life as difficult as possible. We're talking sort of sub Ivan Lendl levels of, of difficultness to interview. Um, but, uh, you know, she had just had an awful loss. And I suspect she's probably just not a great loser, which, you know, for an athlete is Who absolutely is? forgivable. Um, so, it, do, do you know, I reckon if I was a player and I'd lost an absolute heartbreaker, I reckon I could be so surly. Oh, absolutely. And there's nothing that annoys me more than, than seeing somebody that's that's not annoyed after they've lost. You know, something's wrong if you're an athlete and you're... And you're, you know, wafting into a press conference after you've just lost a a, a, a tight match going, oh, well, I'm going to take the positives from it. You know, it's not that bad. No, that's not what I want to hear. So, you know, I can't have it both ways. I, I have to give her the benefit of the doubt on that experience, although it was a, a, a thoroughly um, uh, unpleasant experience. Um, I think she's just takes losing hard, which is fine. Um, I have, I, I mean... I don't really want to be talking about what tennis players are wearing, David. I, I find it... Oh, I do. They're tennis players. I mean, I I, I would... I mean, you, would you ask the CEO of, of a major corporation to talk about what they're wearing? I don't I don't think so. It's I mean, totally different. Are, this is this is entertainment. This is entertainment. Well, it's, it's, it's sport. Well, hang on. You could class anything as entertainment, really. I, th- I think that's a... <sighs> I think that's a slightly cheap justification of. I mean, I, 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 I don't, um, I don't question her. You know, she can wear whatever she wants. I have no problems. I, I don't make any judgments about her based on what she's wearing. I think that's absolutely fine. I just don't think, you know, 
I don't think it should be particularly important to us what she's wearing. Do you, do you see my point? It's interesting. It's interesting. It's an interesting well, side talking point. Well, I Okay, well, I accept... If some people are interested, I accept that. I'm not particularly interested. Are you saying, Catherine, that never in your life watching tennis, you've never been stirred by what somebody's wearing? So when Andre Agassi used to come out in his colourful clothes it made no difference to you compared to when Pete Sampras came out in in when I was a child it did when I was a child before I developed powers of rational thought yes what why what I mean how can you 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 genuinely don't see that 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 is a talking point of any type the fact I mean let's let's face it Andre Agassi a very very frivolous talking point oh come on Andre uh, Catherine Andre Agassi turned it into a point of principle where he didn't actually play Wimbledon for a few years because Ah, that's different though that's a point of principle that that's that's slightly different that was more of a principled objection to sort of the stuffy um arbitrary traditionalism of of Wimbledon rather you know the clothes were were a, a symptom, you know. The, the clothes were an analogy for for something for for a greater a greater issue that he was. Taking. So you think it would be just as good if if Roger Federer turned up for the U.S. Open night session in just any old any old thing that he just happened to throw together, rather than his all black sort of uh, tuxedo look nighttime session. This is Roger Federer at nighttime. Right? I, re- you, I, I you mean, th- I, w- I, w- I like I want I want them to look smart. You know, I want them to look not, you know, not scruffy. It bothers me a bit when, uh, I, you know, I want them to look like they're taking it seriously, and I, and and I think looking smart is probably, you know, a factor in that. But I don't, I, I don't care. I, I don't care whether he's wearing something that resembles a tuxedo or not. I mean, his his jacket type creation at Wimbledon that year. Cool, isn't it? Cool. Did make my stomach turn just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay well there we are there's what uh, Catherine thinks of it I, I just I, mean... I just I, I accept that you know perhaps with Bethany Maddox like she seems you know she seems to want her her clothes to be a talking point which perhaps um moves the goalpost a little for the argument you know if it were me I would be offended if people were talking about my clothes rather than than my tennis but perhaps yeah, but it's different you, with it? somebody we, we, we've, all, we've all got to be different haven't we we've all got to have our own our own thing and our own sort of so, statements so, and so so absolutely fine for her to talk about it but but I, I but I can't you know get any muster any particular enthusiasm for discussing Roger Federer's tuxedo like night session outfit at the US Open last year okay then listeners so we're going to keep Catherine out of this next <laughs> portion because this is where we all get all of your thoughts about uh, tennis clothes and Catherine doesn't want to take part in this but <laughs> so uh, let's hear what you uh, have liked over the years uh, on Twitter you've been sending in your your views about uh, about tennis player clothes and and just to give you a personal anecdote or two I know that when I was a, a young lad I used to look at uh, Ivan uh, Lendl and uh, Stefan Edberg's Adidas tops and think, whoa, those are seriously cool. Uh, the shirts, emphasis on young lad there. Sorry, I know I'm not allowed no, to take no, no, part Catherine, in this part you, of the you, podcast. You, you're not allowed to play this bit. Um, but hang on, uh, you've said young lad there. So th- so it, this is the thing, you know, as a kid, of course, of course you're into No, I, I haven't finished yet. I haven't oh, finished yet. Okay. No, I haven't finished yet. Uh, and then when, when I was, uh, when I was uh, let's see, 1990. Three, when Jim Courier started to play in his striped baseball-style uh, Nike shirts, one with the red sleeves, one with the green sleeves, and he played the uh, he, he won the Australian Open against Stefan Edberg in the final in '93. Then he lost to Sergi Bagheera in the final of the French Open, wearing the green one. And I remember being absolutely gutted because I bought the one with the red sleeves that he wore in Australia just as he changed to the green. Oh. I was just floored. And so I had to go and buy the green one then as well, which my, my old man wasn't too pleased with because that meant shelling out twice. But I, I owned them both, and I thought they were great. Uh, so there was that stage. And then, and I, you know, Catherine's not talking at the moment, but I just know her face is screwed up into a sort of frown of disapproval. And, um, and then um, there was Pete Sampras in 1994 when he switched from Sergio Tacchini to Nike, and he started wearing the beach shorts. And I, and I liked his shirt there, and I, I bought his shirt. And, uh, and, and the only problem with that, I find, Catherine, is that when I put them on, I look nothing like him 
at all because for some reason if you haven't got the sort of uh, the, the 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 greek hairy chest and the uh, and the sort of suntan it doesn't really work on a sort of pasty white transparent english bloke yeah that's a rule that also applies to the um <clears throat> rafael nadal-esque sleeveless tank tops i've seen a few people on on municipal courts around london attempting to pull off that look <laughs> and looking have you noticed absolutely ridiculous players have stopped wearing the sleeveless shirts what i mean why is that that is a bit weird isn't it um, but uh, you know, because I think they started out and they all thought, "Oh yeah, Nadal has got his guns out," as they call them, don't they? Uh, the problem is most blokes have arms rather than guns, and uh, so when they put their sleeveless shirts on, they just look a bit puny, and, a, and it just reveals all about how thin and sort of wiry their physiques really are. Um, however, uh, we have, uh, as I said. Many contributions from our listeners. Let's uh, just see what people have got to say. Uh, John Thornbury says that he still, still, still wears John McEnroe's headband when he plays tennis. <laughs> How cool is that? Well, I thought I'm not allowed to speak. Oh, yeah, sorry, you're not allowed to speak <laughs> in this part. Uh, so, Alistair Walker, well, I think it's really cool, John, and I say go with it, as long as you've got that big permy brown hair as well to go with it. Alistair Walker says uh, he, he used to like Tim Henman's run-over-by-a-three-wheeled scooter number that propelled him to the Roland Garros semi-finals. Well, I, I'm with you. Anything with stripes is good for me, being a West Bromwich Albion fan. No, Catherine, you're not allowed to speak anymore. Uh, Sophie Williams says she had one of those ball clips that Arantxa Sanchez-Vicario used to have and she thought it was the height of tennis gadgetry and I have to say I know where you're coming from there because I think I actually uh, I think I bought one of those for my sister once because uh, she was forever dropping the tennis ball mid-rally uh, and claiming that, that, that she'd been impeded uh, but uh, anyway the, the old um, ball clip it was a bit uncomfortable I, I used to find did you ever have one of those Catherine or is that outlawed as well? Well, no, we're into gadgetry now. This isn't. This isn't. Uh, that serves so a functional what are your purpose. The, what do you think on? Uh, what are your thoughts on the ball clip? I myself had a ball clip and was very pleased with it. It was. It was excellent. Great. So, so you see, Catherine, that's, that's not. That serves a practical purpose. That is not merely an item. No, that that was ex- that was that was basically accessorising. Well, well, no, I didn't care what it looked like. <laughs> it was fulfilling. A, it was fulfilling a purpose. Okay, Catherine's not having it. Uh, Liz Curran says, uh, hold on a second. What does Liz Curran say? Hold on, I've lost her message. Sorry, Liz, I'll come back to you. Uh, We have a comment on the the Agassiz ponytail through the peak cap look, which which Andre had uh, in 1992. And you've admitted to that, haven't you, Catherine? Ponytail through the cap? Yes, I mean, yes. I mean, I had no other option if I wanted to wear a cap, really, other than... Well, but, you, could, but, you could have put it in a bun. <laughs> it's, that is said by somebody that's never had a ponytail before. <laughs> oh, I'm really not winning this argument, am I? Really <laughs> uh, we've got uh, tennis... Uh, the the tennis man, which is quite a quite a statement for a Twitter handle, um, he, he wants to know. It's a question, actually. He wants to know, why did Boris Becker play with a pullover for five sets in the sun? Which I, I think is a fair point. I mean, was I, that a, I think that, a sartorial I look? A fair or? Point. Again, it's a practical point. Yeah, but the point is, was he? It's it's a bit like those blokes who don't need glasses, and yet they think if they wear those sort of non-prescription types, it might make them look in, intelligent. Yeah, you well, know, don't I'm even just get me started wondering. on that sort of person because <laughs> I, I think I've been grumpy enough this podcast, and that will send you me have, over the you? edge. Oh dear, we need to send Catherine a. Uh, um, you know, to the pub, I think. Cheer up a bit. Ivan Lendl's Mizuno outfit uh, with the eagle on it is uh, getting the vote of the tennis man as well, as does Michael Stick's nice 1990 shoes. And little fact about uh, Michael Stick, Catherine, last Wimbledon champion to, to play tennis with his, shorts, with his shirt ticked into his shorts. What? Is that a confirmed stat? Who's been yeah. compiling the stats on that? Wow. That's right. And Simon Mayo, when he was at the BBC uh, for Five Live at Wimbledon, yeah, oh, he's always talking about how uh, we worked it out. We went back in history, last Wimbledon champion to to play with his shirt tucked into his shorts. Wow. Bring back shirts tucked in, I say. Well, Actually, I, I implored the endeavour of even thinking to to uh, to gather that statistic. That's sensational. <laughs> Absolutely, we've uh, we've got a couple of horror stories. Uh, a couple of people are pointing out the um, the shirt worn by Dominica Batty, and if you do get a chance to Google this, do have a look. It's got two gaping big holes in the back of the shirt, 
something to do with with letting the air in but it's a it's a bizarre sight particularly as it looks like it's been a white shirt put in with the reds and it's gone a, a sort of slight musty pink um we've uh, we've also got uh, somebody mentioning uh, agassiz's denim liking that uh, uh, that oh dear. is uh, oh dear, oh dear. Letty Singer, and she also <laughs> says, My dad didn't play tennis, but he loved to show up at tournaments wearing Borg's feeler outfits. <laughs> Excellent. Actually, the Borg outfit, the Borg shirt, when he, which he won Wimbledon in 1984, that striped uh, shirt was a cracker. Catherine's still not I'm, talking. Um, I Antonio wasn't even alive Sor- then, so even if I did have you know, something to say <laughs> on the matter, I should probably keep Sturm anyway. Okay, uh, Antonio Serrano uh, is talking about the Australian Open night session grey and pink that Roger Federer wore. Um, and uh, we've also got a, a vote for the all-black US Open 2009 outfit, uh, but wasn't keen on the black socks. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, that's that one. And there's also uh, the I, I I agree on the black socks. I think black shoes and black socks is all right, but um, black socks and white trainers is a bit weird. Just sort okay. of defies the laws of nature, I think, in 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 a way. She's not in the mood for any jokes at all. Chris <laughs> Evert uh, is is nominated by Anne Grambell or Gambrell, uh, who says the Chris Evert halterneck tennis dress around 1974 uh, is one that she actually sewed herself, adapting a sundress pattern uh, at the age of 14, complete with bracelet. Goodness me! Wow, that's that key. Sounds- yeah, that's very, very good. Uh, that, that, I have to dig that one out of Google as well. And uh, one of our colleagues uh, on um, uh, on the tennis circuit, Barry Wood, was was drawing my attention. I think it was to Anne White, who played in the uh, the all white lycra kit and created huge headlines about twenty five years ago for wearing this basically this bodysuit, which was very bizarre. Um, and she looked like she was going for a PE lesson. Um, but uh, anyway, that's our tennis clothes chat. And as you can hear, Catherine is none too impressed. Catherine, yeah, anything next... else to say before we go? Well, next week, hairdos. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Tennis Podcast. I've enjoyed it immensely. Catherine, you? Yes, in a perverse kind of way, yes. <laughs> and we'll be back next week to talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.